We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. There's a whole world of undersea cables and pipelines and transmission lines that are vulnerable to attack, that are vulnerable to accidents. And because the Nord Stream attack was so relatively unsophisticated when you think about it, and someone was able to get away with it, that just really illustrates that if Russia or any country really wanted to go out there and start damaging this infrastructure, they, you know, they kind of have a roadmap maybe for how to do it. And I think that's, that is, I know from talking particularly to European officials, that has them very, very nervous. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hello, and welcome back to the Secrets and Spies podcast. If you're thinking, hey, that doesn't sound like Chris Carr, you would be correct. My name is Matt Fulton, and I'm one half of our Espresso Martini episodes. I'll be doing some solo interviews going forward, and for my first outing, I'm joined by Shane Harris to look at recent developments and the investigation of the Nord Stream pipeline bombing that occurred in September of 2022. Shane covers intelligence and national security issues for The Washington Post. He is the author of two books, The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State, and At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. In 2021, he was part of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for reporting on the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Before we begin, all our episodes are now on YouTube, and you can find the link to subscribe to that in the show notes. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for $4 or £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble, where you can find cups, coasters, water bottles, and tote bags. If you enjoy this episode, please share it on your social media with friends, family, and the like. And lastly, please do leave a review on your podcast streaming app of choice. Every review juices that algorithm and helps the show get discovered by others. All the relevant links for today will be in the show notes below. Thanks so much for your support, and without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Okay, Shane Harris, thanks for coming on the pod. Good to have you. Yeah, it's good to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Sure. So there's a lot of new uh, reporting out today about the Nord Stream bombing, and I'm eager to get into that. Um, But before we do, I was just wondering if you could, for any listeners who don't eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff the way you do, to just give us a quick rundown on 
what the Nord Stream pipeline is or was, what it was meant to do, and sort of the controversy around its development. Sure. Well, there uh, Nord Stream is actually it's it's two pipelines. Uh, well, two systems anyway. Nord Stream one and Nord Stream two, and basically these are designed to carry um, uh, natural gas from Russia to Europe. So they're going to be a, a major conduit of energy. Um, uh, to flow uh, across the continent. Um, they've long been controversial for a number of reasons, probably chief of which is that opponents of the Nord Stream project, and there have been many in U.S. politics and in Congress, you know, see this or have long seen it as something that would make Europe too dependent on Russian energy sources, and that would basically give a strategic advantage to Russia in the long term. And I think prior to the war in Ukraine, that seemed like maybe less of an urgent or um, even kind of uh, um, worrisome issue. Um, Post-war in Ukraine, now I think everybody understands that, in fact, Russia has wielded energy as a, a leverage, as a weapon, some might say. Uh, and so Nord Stream kind of became front and center uh, to this conflict. Um, people may remember hearing about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is the most recent one, which was not yet operational, because right as the war was beginning, the German chancellor came out and publicly announced that Germany would not be authorizing the final construction of that pipeline or the final authorization of it. And this was a really big deal because Germany had been seen, I think, by a lot of people in the alliance of NATO countries that have come to the aid of Ukraine as maybe being you know, a little wobbly when it came to standing up to Russia. And when Germany essentially said, we're halting the Nord Stream to final, final authorization, this was seen as, wow, Germany is really going all in against Russia and is standing with the allies. So before we ever get to the pipelines being attacked, Nord Stream, it was kind of both a symbol of Russian influence and energy dependence that it was creating in Europe, but also became this kind of key strategic pivoting point where when the Germans said no to Nord Stream 2, that's when people, I think, in Europe especially got the sense that, that a very solid alliance was forming and that Germany, which had seemed to kind of be on the fence, not even really sure Russia was going to invade, was now solidly in the camp of anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine. Right. So then we get to the attack, I guess. We're about <laughs> six months removed. Uh, happened, what, September 26th, I believe it yep, was, of, of last year. So tell us what, what went boom under the ocean. Yeah, well, at first, no one was entirely sure uh, what had happened. But there were these really remarkable images people will remember of like giant bubbles coming up from the the floor of the seabed there in the Baltic Sea. Um, it almost looked like the sea was kind of like boiling in one spot. And what that was, was gas being released from the pipeline, uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, which had ruptured. And what we find is that there was a series of three explosions along the Nord Stream 1 and the Nord Stream 2 pipelines um, that led to uh, ruptures on those pipelines. Now, none of these, it's important to note at the time, were serving any customers. Nord Stream 2, as we said, had not been operational. Nord Stream 1, the Russians had actually already turned off the gas to that in response to uh, sanctions and, and, and in response to punitive measures that the West was taking. So these explosions happen. Uh, people are wondering what in the world, you know, pipelines don't usually just blow up and certainly two of them don't. They can see the visual evidence of it. And it doesn't take very long for 
uh, investigators in various countries to determine that there's been some kind of explosion down there. They eventually determined that it was sabotage, that someone had deliberately planted explosives. And importantly for the, the timeline, it only is a matter of days in, after the pipeline blows up that U.S. officials and European officials come out and start publicly pointing the finger back at Moscow. They don't have proof that the Russians blew it up, but they are saying essentially that this is almost certainly uh, an act of aggression by Russia. This is an attempt to try and blackmail the West, to use energy as a weapon, um, to cut a vital source of energy uh, uh, to Europe off. Mind you, it already was cut off. We'll come back to that maybe later. Um, but it, it, the, the, the sort of the, the initial reaction is Russia blew up these pipelines, and this is just a measure of the lengths that Putin is willing to go in his you know, illegal invasion of Ukraine and in his attempts to um, punish the West and to undermine the Western alliance. Right. So this question of attribution has had a bit of a complicated journey, one could say. So take us through the history, if you will, of how the hunt for these perpetrators has evolved for the past few months. Right. So with in mind that everyone kind of just assumes Russia blew up the pipeline, mm -hmm. um, you know, of course, these countries do start investigating. Uh, Germany and Sweden and Denmark, who all kind of have a piece of this, both in terms of territorial waters or economic zones that may be implicated, and of course Germany being you know an operator on the pipeline, they start doing their own investigations. And you know, as time goes on, I would say for the first several months, people more or less just kind of forget about this in the sense that they know that Nord Stream has been attacked, but there are other things happening. You know, there's a you know, Ukraine is mounting a big counteroffensive. It's making gains in the war. And the question of like, you know, the investigation into Nord Stream sort of fades a little bit. Um, but as time goes on, what's interesting is that the countries investigating don't find the evidence that they were expecting to find, which is evidence that Russia was to blame. Divers and well, drones and submersibles go down to the site. Um, there is video that gets captured. Forensic evidence, including explosive residue, is taken from the blast site. Everybody knows and can prove there was an explosion here. It seems to be clearly planted, but there's no evidence that's pointing directly at Russia. Um, the forensic evidence itself isn't telling anyone that. Um, U.S. intelligence agencies and European intelligence agencies are not intercepting communications of Russian officials or Russian actors talking about planning to attack the pipeline, taking credit for the attack, responding to the outrage over the attack, the kind of things that you would expect to see and to intercept. And important to note, the U.S. has very, very good penetration of Russian communications. It's one of the reasons why they were so confident that Russia was preparing to invade, because they were intercepting some of these plans. So they're just not seeing any indicators of that where they would expect to. And, you know, Russia is publicly saying, we didn't do this. And privately, a lot of officials start questioning, like, well, yeah, what would the motive exactly be for Russia to blow up this pipeline? And you hear varying theories about why they might or why they might not. But what you're kind of like left with towards the end of last year, I think, and then going into the beginning of this year in that general time frame is that the kind of evidence you would expect to see just doesn't point at Russia. So as we were reporting that story out, um, one of the things that we were also hearing was a lot of speculation privately among intelligence officials that there may have been another party who stood something, had something to gain by blowing up the pipeline, and that was Ukraine. 
no one was pointing the finger at Kyiv publicly. There was no evidence conclusively tying Ukraine or any country for that matter to the attack. But privately, a number of officials who I spoke with and colleagues spoke with were becoming more persuaded over time that there might be a reason that Ukraine had to blow up the pipeline, one of which was, some people felt, um, to try and stiffen the resolve of the alliance to basically, if people thought that it was Russia, they would band together in the face of this Russian aggression. Um, and, you know, again, important to remember that's just speculation. But this kind of brings us up to the present moment and in the reporting that we did this week and that the New York Times and others have also done, where there now appears to be, it's circumstantial at this case, but there is some body of growing intelligence that does suggest that if not the government in Kyiv in Ukraine, that some kind of a proxy or a pro-Ukraine actor may have actually been responsible for the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines. Thank you for that. So I guess that sort of gets us to to the meat of the story as to where we are today. So uh, we're recording this on March 8th. So by the time this airs, it could have changed a little bit. But uh, there's a lot of developments today. There's a German publication, Die Zeit, which uh, says that German authorities have sort of concluded that six individuals, a couple specialist divers were responsible. They used... Uh, a yacht sort of owned by a company in Poland that was owned by two Ukrainians, possibly bankrolled by a Ukrainian oligarch. Um, again, a lot of this is 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 speculation, of course. Um, and then there's uh, reporting from you said, like you said, your uh, colleagues at the at the New York Times, and from you, of course, that sort of officials, U.S. officials who have reviewed this intelligence, said that there's you know more that these pro-Ukrainian partisans have have done so. So I'm sort of curious to to is there anything more we can say about if if these suggestions are true what kind of group would this would this be? I mean you're sort of you're you're to me you're sort of with this attack you're kind of hovering around the question of and there's that eternal debate of what is terrorism, and it's also often subjective as to who is using it, you know. But but who who would these people be? Well, that's a great question, and you know, it, it, it's described to us by sources and others have, have put it this way: of you know, pro-Ukrainian groups. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean uh, individuals of another nationality who are just anti-Russia and trying to help Ukraine? Does this mean that these are offshoots of Ukrainian special forces or their intelligence services that are operating independently of the central government? We don't necessarily know that. But a couple of things that I think that we, we can pretty confidently say based on what we know. One is that um, you would have to have, these actors would have to have some level of sophistication in terms of knowing how to, to dive down, to plant explosives, um, you know, to, 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 to get to the pipelines using a boat that, um, you know, you could not make undetectable, but like knowing how to turn the transponder off, for instance, so that you're like, you know, when you're in the area, you're sort of going dark. Um, they would not necessarily have to be, you know, as sophisticated as a Navy. I mean, the pipeline actually is not that deep in the water. Um, it's not necessarily to say that you or I could go down and do it. I mean, Matt, I don't know what your <laughs> diving skills are, you know, mine None. are a little rusty, <laughs> uh, you know, but I think that the, you know, the assumption that this could only be a Navy, you know, or it could only be like the Navy SEALs. I, I've talked to a lot of people who say, we're not so sure about that. So some level of sophistication. 
Um, obviously a motive for doing it. Now, if you're a pro-Ukrainian group, and if that means this small group of people or, you know, some kind of uh, you know, offshoot of the government, then I think, you know, one speculation that we've talked about already about why they would do this would be that you want people to think that it's Russia. And for a long time, I think that was a very, you know, that was they whoever did this successfully achieved that. I should note, too, there are some people who still think it was Russia. Mm -hmm. This is by no means a consensus. But you could do it with a small group, presumably. Um, and, and, and obviously, because it has gone, as far as we know, undetected and unattributed, it would seem to me anyway that, you know, a small group could actually do this and, and, and essentially get away with it. Um, it. It lends actually more credence to me to the hypothesis that it is a small band of people using, you know, a vessel that was able to get in and get out because you just don't see a big military footprint around this, this operation. Um, so then I guess it gets to the question too of, you know, if this is, let's say for sake of argument, a, a Ukrainian affiliated or pro-Ukrainian nationalist group, or maybe it's people from a, another country like Poland who are just, you know, self-starters and, and are very pro-Ukraine, um, did the central government in Ukraine know anything about it? Now, their officials, and we got a statement yesterday from President Zelensky's chief advisor, just absolutely emphatically say, we know nothing about this. We were not involved in this. Um, and and that, that very well could be true. I mean, you know, I mean, as you know, uh, you know, governments don't always have a complete handle on everything that's happening necessarily that's in their name. Um, if this was a small group that decided to take it on its own initiative and go do this, uh, and the German reporting uh, that you mentioned suggests that could be the case, um, then sure, you could imagine how someone would do this without, you know, Vladimir Zelensky and his aides knowing anything about it. And, and you could also imagine, I think, that if this were a pro-Ukrainian group that did it, they would want to make sure that the government in Kyiv didn't know anything about it. Because, you know, obviously, if it became known that Ukraine had blown up this pipeline, this, you know, very valuable piece of infrastructure to its allies in Europe, that could potentially fracture the alliance in support of Ukraine. I mean, it would be kind of, <clears throat> I mean, a, almost a form of political suicide, I think, arguably, for Zelensky to have authorized this attack because he would then give a reason for all of the critics in particular of the support for the war in Ukraine in places like maybe in Germany or even in the U.S. to say, why in the world are we supporting this country if it's going around blowing up, you know, pipelines that are used to provide energy to, you know, citizens in Europe? Um, so all of those, you know, kind of factors would come into play, you would think, if this was a pro-Ukraine group. Keep it small, enough expertise to pull it off and make sure that the central government in Kyiv doesn't know about it. Again, a theory, but you can imagine that this, you know, again, a kind of scenario and, and the information that's emerging from German publications from our sources kind of, you know, points initially sort of in that direction, although it's important to underscore, it is not conclusive. And this, this may all turn out to be incorrect yeah. and red herrings. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's an important uh, distinction to make there. But so if, if I put myself in President Zelensky's shoes, right, and and I am desperately in need of continued support, diplomatic, military, financial, intelligence support from the Western alliance, and it 
does not strike me as helpful to blow up a pipeline in the exclusive economic waters of Denmark and Sweden, especially when I have aspirations in the future to join the EU and NATO. So are you, when, when you speak to your sources in Europe or in the U.S. intelligence community, are you seeing any kind of worry, I, I guess, that, that, that the Ukrainian security services aren't entirely in control of people who could be acting within their name, if this theory bears out to be true? Well, there is some anxiety, I think, about, you know, among U.S. and Western officials about what the Ukrainian services or what we might call, you know, special operations forces, like what they may be doing. So, for instance, um, you know, there, uh, you know, some months ago, notably, there was this um, uh, car bomb that mm -hmm. ended up killing a woman named Maria Dugina, who is the daughter of a kind of ultra-nationalist ally of Vladimir Putin. Um, that was publicly, anyway, through news reporting, attributed to elements of Ukraine. Uh, and we're told that officials in the West actually admonished the Ukrainians about that because, you know, Dugina, Dugina was apparently an, was a bystander to an assassination attempt that was meant to be for her father or something. Yeah. Um, but that was seen as a, as a highly provocative strike. It was, happened near Moscow. And I think it made a lot of people in the West very nervous. And we're looking at Zelensky and sort of privately saying, hey, you know, you need to cool it with these operations with your guys that they're doing going around, you know, targeting critics of Vladimir Putin, because, of course, remember, the United States and the West, too, but principally the United States has been very concerned about escalating this conflict and giving Vladimir Putin a reason to use more horrible weapons. Um, but there are things that just, you know, mysteriously blow up in Russia and no one precisely takes credit for it. Uh, we'll remember that spectacular attack on the bridge going over to Crimea some months ago, which the Ukrainians never actually said that they did, but sort of you know, obliquely acknowledged it. So I do think that there is a concern among Western officials that some of these special operations and some of these more clandestine or even covert operations that are occurring run the risk of provoking the Kremlin and escalating the war. At the same time, I will say, as a, as a broader matter, as the war has gone on, U.S. intelligence officials in particular, who I talk to, their anxiety level has gone down a bit when it comes to this sort of question of, uh, of, of escalation. <clears throat> what I mean by that is, and I think that in the beginning, they were very concerned that Vladimir Putin could be provoked into using tactical nuclear weapons uh, in the conflict. That was always the big, big concern. But as time has gone on, as the Russian military has performed you know, so disastrously as they as they have you know basically failed in their central goal of not only capturing the government in the country of Ukraine but have really not you know you know amassed huge amounts of territory stretching across the west of the country they've been driven back to this defensive position in the east um, I think U.S. officials feel that while there is still a risk that Vladimir Putin could use tactical nuclear weapons, he's not as close to a kind of trigger point as maybe they felt that he had been. There are still some red lines, such as like if they, you know, they'll say if he felt that he was about to lose Crimea, you know, he might actually resort to tactical nuclear weapons use. Yeah. But in the beginning, I think that there was concern that these kinds of special operations and provocations might have been something that pushed him close to the brink of, of using a nuclear weapon, that anxiety just seems like it's dissipated to some degree. It's not gone, but I, but I think that in the context of these special operations, 
you know, six, seven months ago, they may have made U.S. officials a bit more nervous than they do now. All that's to say, I think that, you know, the U.S. is highly aware that Russia knows slash believes that these special operations that are going on targeting Russia are being carried out by Ukraine and potentially with the assistance of some of its Western allies, although how exactly that's happening is not clear. Um, but, you know, the, the Nord Stream pipeline is sort of its own thing, right? That happens, as you said, in the territorial economic zone of, of, uh, of uh, Denmark and Sweden. Yes, it's a Russian co-project with its German partners, but it was already kind of turned off anyway. Nobody died. So it's yeah. sort of in this weird, like unique setting when it comes to uh, these these strange explosions and incidents that have occurred over the course of the war. Yeah. So you you touched on this a bit previously, but you know, there's been this huge rash of mysterious bombings and fires all across strategic sites in Russia from the start of the war. Um, some of it were sort of likely behind. Some of it's probably the Ukrainian special services. You mentioned more attacks that have more, I want to say, I'll be I'll be kind here, unconventional kind of tactics. So like the assassination of Daria Dugina, uh, the bombing of the Kerch Strait Bridge. Do, do you see those attacks and, and, and Nord Stream as, as being one pro-Ukrainian entity behind it? Or is it sort of all a patchwork of different groups that might enti- not entirely be in coordination with each other? I, I don't think we know is this is this is the easy answer. I mean, I could imagine a scenario when I'm done, I'm purely, you know, imagining this. I'm not uh-huh. saying that I have any reporting to back this up, but that some of the things like the Dugina hit or certainly, you know, things like um, explosions in Russia or the, the bridge attack or um, drones that have penetrated strategic air bases and blown up planes in Russia, you know, could definitely be, you know, the work of um, Ukrainian special forces that are, you know, operating, you know, clandestinely, let's say. Those, those are Russian targets, right? Those are purely Russian targets. The Dugina assassination, it's a little different because it's an assassination, right? right. It's not a military target. But those are all things that are happening inside of Russia or in, or, or in Ukraine, you know, like with the, uh, the, the, the bridge attack. The pipeline is something different, right? It's an international project. It's happening far from the battlefield. Um, the impact of it on uh, European citizens and European energy markets is is, 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 its, is its own kind of set of consequences that are different than the kind of consequences you would imagine from hitting a Russian military base. Um, so, and, and that, what I keep coming back to is that I don't know what the incentive would be for Zelensky to authorize an attack on the pipeline. Yeah. Because if that were to become known, I mean, he, I think he really would be at risk of losing huge support yeah. um, in his coalition. I mean, in Germany alone, where there are, you know, is a sizable portion of the population that is very skeptical of supporting Ukraine, you have pro-Russian elements, and you can only imagine the, the domestic outrage if it were determined that this country that Germany were, you know, kind of putting its neck out for and sending tanks to was actually secretly blowing up its pipelines mm-hmm. and causing, we should say, you know, tremendous damage. It could be hundreds of millions of dollars to repair these things. So I don't know what the incentive is for Zelensky to authorize something like that. Um, there could very well be an incentive for pro-Ukrainian elements to carry it out and make sure Zelensky didn't know right. or ensure that he had plausible deniability for that. 
Um, so that's what makes me think that this is kind of, you know, if in fact Ukraine was behind it, that's the, the this, I could imagine a scenario where that attack on the pipeline is just different in the way it is constructed and carried out than these other attacks inside of Russia, where I think from the reporting we've done, it's fairly clear that Zelensky understood that those were his people doing it. I wanted to ask you a bit about the the forensic evidence surrounding the pipeline attack. I mean, I, I think uh, I read some estimates are a thousand pounds of military grade explosives that were physically planted on on the pipelines. And just so our, our listeners knows, these pipelines are quite substantial. These are steel pipelines encased in concrete on the on the bed of the Baltic Sea, about eighty yards down, which is not that deep as far as ocean sea depth goes. Yeah. But I mean, you think of all the incredible capabilities of, let's say, the FBI laboratory in Quantico or the UK's laboratory out in Porton Down. That I mean, after after 9-11, within a day or two, we knew the identities of all the 19 hijackers. But but 16, we're 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 six months on now and there's so still little conclusive forensic evidence to tie this to someone. When you talk to your sources, does that seem kind of surprising to you that a non-state actor, if that's who did this, could leave such little evidence? Well, I think it's it's surprising. It's not surprising to people I talk to that the explosives themselves have not been um, dispositive, you know, or in terms of you know, not being able to, you know, point directly to one country. They all still think that, you know, whoever did this, even if it wasn't a state actor, would have had to have had some pretty significant support behind them. And as you pointed out, I mean, it is a lot of explosives. Yeah. It's it's not like, you know, something of imagining from a movie where somebody puts a little brick of C4 on the pipeline and like pushes a button. This is, this is you know, you'd have to have some expertise in undersea demolition, um, you know, which, by the way, is not unique to the government domain. I mean, there are people in the commercial world who know about demolition. Yeah. Um, but what I think, you know, it, that, that the resourcing behind this operation would have to be pretty substantial in terms of being able to acquire the explosives, you know, it's a lot of it to get, to get quietly, to transport out to the site, to be able to dive down and do this. But it's not as though only one country possesses that knowledge. It's not as though that knowledge is so secret that it's locked away someplace and compartmented. So in that sense, I don't think it's that surprising to sources that the forensic evidence has not pointed directly conclusively to one place because it could be any number of people what's also interesting to me and this is something that i you know maybe incorrectly assumed when the the attack was carried out you know i'm used to writing about surveillance as a kind of you know all-encompassing you know digital world in which all communications and everything are interceptable and known I don't think that the undersea area where this was was a particularly surveilled area. I mean, there were size there were seismologists who were able to report on the explosions, um, but it doesn't necessarily care or does, it doesn't seem any way that this part of the ocean was just under constant monitoring, such that you would like know immediately if a submarine were in the area or something like that. Some private researchers have been out there trying to, you know, understand whether ships in the area might, you know, could you narrow down from uh, um, publicly available shipping data of which ships were in the area at which time, um, you know, which, what, what, what maybe a candidate for the ship that actually plays the explosives. Well, it turns out it's a fairly busy area. Yeah. Um, there's lots of ships that are transiting that area. So it's not so easy to just narrow it down. Um, and I think that's one of the, one of the interesting aspects of this is that, attributing this attack just based on 
surveillance data, shipping records, explosive residue turns out actually not to be so straightforward. So we covered a lot about how you don't need to be entirely sophisticated to pull this off. It's not as complicated a hit as as one might assume. Given that, are you hearing any concern about about potential vulnerabilities to other undersea pipelines in the North Sea or the Baltic, or not just gas pipelines, but power cables, fiber optic cables. Yeah, this is this this attack has sparked a lot of those kinds of concerns, um, which were there before the Nord Stream attack, to be sure, but have now been kind of amped up. Um, you know, a lot of officials in, in Scandinavia, uh, you know, um, the Secretary General of NATO, even yesterday, so Tuesday, the 7th of March, addressed this issue about saying, look, what this demonstrates is that there's a whole world of undersea cables and pipelines and transmission lines that are vulnerable to attack, that are vulnerable to accidents. And because the Nord Stream attack was so relatively unsophisticated, when you think about it, and someone was able to get away with it, that just really illustrates that if Russia or any country really wanted to go out there and start damaging this infrastructure, they, you know, they kind of have a roadmap maybe for how to do it. And I think that's, that is, I know from talking particularly to European officials, that has them very, very nervous because, you know, let's allow for a moment that it, that it was Russia <laughs> that blew up Nord Stream. Well, then they would have every incentive to do something like this again and to cut power lines or data lines. So I think that, you know, it sometimes takes a big incident like this, and you see this in the world of cybersecurity too, to kind of focus people and to get their imagination going and saying, like, you know, hey, like, this is not a one-off. This could happen again. Uh, uh, and, and here are all the different ways that it could that it could play out. Yeah. So I, I say this with a big disclaimer that that none of this is is proven yet, and it's still all quite speculative. But if the theory does bear out that pro-Ukrainian partisan groups pulled pulled this attack off and they are responsible for it, how do you see that uh, complicating Ukraine's relationship with with NATO and and the EU? Um, potentially, it could really complicate it. So, like as you say, let's just imagine, for sake of argument, it's 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 positively attributed to a pro-Ukrainian group. The first thing that President Zelensky is going to want to do is persuasively demonstrate that he had no knowledge of this, uh -huh. which is going to be really hard because there are going to be plenty of people who would then turn around and say, "Oh, come on, how could you possibly not have known this?" You know, journalists like me will be looking for connections between those groups yeah. and the central government. Um, you got a preview of this yesterday when Zelensky's top advisor came out and said, categorically, we didn't do this. We know nothing about this. So it would become really um, essential for him to, to make a very strong public statement uh, and probably words to the effect of, and we will find who did this. And if they turn out to be Ukrainians, we will prosecute them to the full extent of the law, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the public is not going to make that distinction, I think, in a lot of these countries and in the United States as well, between, you know, quote unquote, pro-Ukraine partisans versus the government of Ukraine. And I think that there's a real chance that um, this this would then divide people into camps to on one end saying we can't continue, whatever country you're in, Germany, the United States, wherever, we can't continue supporting Ukraine if they're going to behave so recklessly, if they have no control over their people. You know, you blew up this pipeline, you, you know, uh, uh, you are cutting off Europe from energy. 
you know, all the perfectly, you know, legitimate arguments that you could make for why you shouldn't condone this kind of behavior. I can absolutely also imagine another camp saying this is war. Um, you know, the, the, the Ukraine is going to do what it's going to have to do. You know, in war, there is sabotage. There are all kinds of operations like this. We could go back and, you know, look at the history of World War II and, uh, you know, things that the OSS did that we now celebrate as daring and what pluck they had and how imaginative this was and win the war, but whatever, you know, whatever the cost. Um, it, you know, regardless, it's going to become politically very inconvenient to say the least if yeah. this turns out to be a Ukrainian proxy actor. It's just going to make things very messy, very divisive, and it's going to raise all kinds of questions, frankly, about whether or not Volodymyr Zelensky has control, yeah. not just over people operating in his name, but over his government. Yeah, all fair questions. Um, I know you're very busy. I don't want to keep you uh, too long from your uh, reporting. Um, before we wrap, where can listeners find more about you and your work? Sure. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Shane Harris. Uh, you can read my work in the Washington Post. Uh, I find me there. Uh, I also host a podcast called Chatter, uh, which is a weekly podcast where we talk to really interesting people about topics of national security and foreign policy. So, uh, yeah, just uh, look me up. You'll, you'll, you'll find me out there either in your podcast feed or on Twitter or on the, the Washington Post website. Sure. Well, I want to say Chatter is an excellent podcast and listeners of this one should definitely check that one out as well if they haven't already. There's a lot of uh, good stuff that you and David Priest are doing on there. Yeah, thank you. So Shane Harris, thank you for coming on. Matt, thank you. This is a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan of your work as well. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's nice to see you face to face here and not just on the Twitters. I know. This was, this was good. <laughs> this was good. Like real, real interaction. Cool. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 